John 18, verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. When Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is the word of the Lord. Um, we're going to be looking uh, in John chapter 18. We're starting a new series this morning uh, called Good Friday. And really looking at the idea of, of was Good Friday actually good? Um, <clears throat> we're going to be looking over the next several weeks in the last part of John's gospel where he, as an eyewitness to the events of Jesus, shares um, what happened in the life of Christ with his betrayal, his arrest, <clears throat> his crucifixion, and ultimately his resurrection. We're going to be looking at that, but the Easter weekend, in a few weeks, begins with Good Friday. And if you're like me, I, I've asked the question before, what makes Good Friday good? Like what, actually, why do we call it good? Because if you look at it from our perspective, it seems kind of grim, a little dark. We see betrayal, we see unfair arrest, we see unfair judgment, we see um, injustice take place. So what makes Good Friday or the Easter so significant that a, a Jewish man 2,000 years ago almost would do something that would alter our calendars. It would alter um, not only our calendars, but alter this world and, and maybe even alter your life. What happened then that makes that such a big deal? This morning, I want us to look at John 18, and we're going to walk through this story. We're going to walk through this narrative, and we're going to see what happens to Jesus in these first 11 verses. And we're going to draw out, when we get done with this, we're going to draw out three things from this passage that show us something. We've got to walk out of here this morning believing, knowing, and ultimately responding to. So look at John chapter 18, verse 1. Just kind of want to uh, uh, show us what's going on right here. According to other gospels, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is in the garden, he's praying. And um, <clears throat> must have been a place that he has frequented quite often because Judas knows that he's there. 
But Jesus had just got done uh, praying something we call the high priestly prayer where he prayed for his disciples in John 17 and ultimately prayed for those who would follow after them, which would be uh, like you and me. He went there to pray a little bit more. And as he's praying, as he and his disciples are in this uh, moonlit garden together with very little light, all of a sudden in the distance comes a Judas bringing with him about two to 600 soldiers. These soldiers are armed. Uh, they have torches, they have lanterns, they have weapons, and they are coming after Jesus to take him in. At that time, what was really going on was the, the Romans always had more guards around this time of year because they thought with so many Jews in Jerusalem, there could be a revolt. So they sent with Judas and some of the temple guard, they sent with them between two to 600 men to capture Jesus and a few disciples. Lest we uh, don't grasp kind of what's going on in the garden. Imagine for a moment, a moonlit night, you can't see. And off in the distance, you hear just some clanging. You hear some guys chattering. You kind of wonder what's, what's going on. And then all of a sudden, you're one of Jesus' disciples and you look up and in the distance, you see you see a torch and then you see two and then you see what just seems like a hundred or more and there, and there are that many just coming toward you. And you're looking at Jesus and when you're looking at Jesus, you're wondering, why is he not responding? He's just standing here. He's just waiting. Like he's not, he's not doing anything about this. And if you're like me, if you see a flashlight on your property uh, in the middle of the night, you start to freak out a little. Well, now imagine hundreds of lanterns and men coming toward you you know to take you back for an unfair, an unfair court hearing. They come to Jesus being led by Judas. Judas had been one of Jesus' closest friends for three years. He had been his disciple. But in this moment, he was betraying the one that he had walked with, the one he had learned under. And they come to Jesus and they say, uh, Jesus actually steps up and he says, whom do you seek? Who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus makes this statement, this kind of, kind of bold and yet odd statement. He says, I am he. And when he says that, the, the guards, the soldiers, they, they have kind of a strange response. What happens? They fall at his feet. They fall face down. They, they aren't these armed guards surrounding Jesus and his disciples. When he says, I am he, they fall face first. Jesus then kind of looks at him and says, um, again, who is it that you seek? Now, if I were one of those guys, if I were one of those guards at that moment, I think I would have already been hightailing it back to my home because this guy spoke and I fell to my face. But they say, they say, they look at him and you can almost hear them asking, you know, timidly like, excuse me, sir, I, I think we're seeking you. You know, we're, we're, we thought we were big and bad. You spoke, we fell to the ground. We're seeking you. And by his wording and other gospel accounts, we realize that Jesus and his disciples were seized. Like they, 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 had them, they had them not only surrendered, but they had them arrested. And Jesus looks and he says, look, I tell you what, you let me, excuse me, you let these guys go and take me in. He looks at these soldiers and says, you let these guys go and you take me in because I'm the one that you're looking for. Jesus then quotes some scripture fulfilling prophecy that he would save his disciples' life. And then Peter acts like he always does in a very brash way. And he, he grabs a weapon 
And he goes, and, and, and we understand by the, the weaponry that he would have carried, he wasn't carrying like a long samurai sword. He'd had like a small dagger. So he grabbed a dagger out of his cloak, and he goes to ultimately try to, to kill someone. And when he does, he misses, and he cuts this guy's ear off. And we know from other gospel accounts that Jesus just reaches down and heals that guy's ear. Once again, if I were one of the bad guys, I would want to be leaving at that moment because now he's already healed a guy. But Jesus says, Peter, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. I, I need you to stop. I need you to refrain. I've got to drink the cup the Father has given me. And then they carry on. See, John doesn't tell us the same details that all the other gospel writers do. And he doesn't tell us as many. But there are several things John is wanting to point out to us from this passage. You see, we can, we can read this rather woodenly and lose sight of what's going on. We can flip over a page or two and realize that Jesus now comes back in, in, in as a resurrected body to save people from their sin. But in the moment, if you're one of Jesus' disciples, in that moment, your leader, the one who you followed, the one who you've abandoned everything else to follow and live for is all of a sudden giving himself over to these soldiers. And you would have been facing thoughts of fear, anxiety, wondering about your future, worry, worrying what's going to happen next, all of which are questions that you and I face weekly, daily, or even on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. See, because you may be in here this morning and you are fearful and worried <clears throat> about your wayward child that you invested in for years, you poured into for years, you brought them to church, you, you poured into their life, and now they seem to be going in a totally different direction than you anticipated. Maybe uh, you sitting here this morning hurt over something that has happened to you, burdened down by that, and you can't seem to let whatever that thing is go and it burdens you and it stresses you out every single day. Maybe you sit in here this morning and you wonder if your marriage will actually make it. Will it last? Or you sit in here this morning and it hasn't lasted and you don't know what to do next. Maybe you're in here this morning in angst over your future. You wonder, what's my future going to look like? I had it planned. I thought that this was it. And it's not turning out quite like I thought. Or you're in here this morning and you're not trusting in God's ability to do for you what you hope he can. Because maybe at this moment you have lost the sight or lost faith in that he is actually in charge at this very hour. And this morning, I want you to take comfort and be strengthened in knowing that the creator of this universe, the one who spoke and this world came into existence is for you. He's for you. Maybe you walked in here this morning and you haven't realized that. Maybe you think that because everyone else in this world seems to be against you, that God is too. God is for you. And this morning, there are three implications that we're going to see. Three things we're going to draw out from this passage that show us. Uh, something that we've got to walk out of here with this morning if our life is going to be shaped and changed by the Jesus that we read about. Because I'll say this, these three things that we walk out of here with this morning, these three implications can and will shape, not just today, not just tomorrow, but the rest of your life. 
These three things will shape you and the rest of your life. The first one is this. Jesus proclaims that he is God. Jesus makes this bold declaration about who he is. Let's see how he does it. They come to Jesus and they have swords, they have clubs, they have lanterns, they have torches. They're coming to capture this guy. And when they do, Jesus asks the question, whom do you seek? And they say, we're looking for Jesus. But Jesus didn't just step up to the plate and say like, hey guys, I'm right here. I'm the one you're looking for. No, he uses a word or uses a couple of words that are extremely different. In the English translation, it says, I am he. But see, the the word he is actually placed on there for our readability. What Jesus actually says is, I am. The word he is added for our purposes only. What makes this so significant? If we flip over uh, 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 quite a bit of ways in our Bible to Exodus chapter 3. We see what's going on in Exodus chapter 3. Moses is a shepherd in in, in the desert for his father-in-law. And he looks up and when he does, he sees a bush in the distance and it's burning. But it's not being consumed. It's It's just burning. It's not being burned up though. And Moses approaches it. And as Moses approaches it, what happens? God speaks to him out of that bush and says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remove your sandals. And Moses removes his sandals and he hides his face because he's extremely scared of this voice coming out of this bush. And what happens? Moses approaches and as he does, he and God have this conversation and God says, Moses, I'm going to send you to take my people out of Egypt to the promised land. And Moses asked this question. He says, on whose authority will I go? In other words, he asked the question, what is your name? And God from that burning bush says, when you go, tell them I am has sent you. God said to Moses, my name is I am. So wait a second, you're saying, Adrian, that that the same God that led Israel out of Egypt parted the Red Sea and ultimately led the Israelites into the promised land is the same Jesus standing in the garden? Yes. That's who's saying that in John 8, we see that Jesus is in this argument with the Pharisees and the Pharisees are trying trying to catch him in a lie and obviously he's not lying and Jesus says, yeah, I've seen Abraham. And they said, man, you're not even 40 years old yet. How have you seen Abraham? And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, I, I, it's not, I will be, I was, it is, I am. You might say big deal, big deal. Anyone can claim to be God. Anyone can claim to be God. But when is the last time someone claiming to be God caused his opponents to fall at his feet by his very word? When he spoke, these armed guards fell to their faces out of sheer awe of who they were standing in front of. When is the last time someone claiming to be God healed a man who had been dead for four straight days or made a few fish and and, and a few pieces of bread feed, scholars say, nearly 20,000 people? Jesus is making the bold declaration, I am God. He didn't simply come to show us the way to God. He came to show us that he is God, not coming to show us how to find him, but ultimately coming to find you and me. You see, this detachment of soldiers, uh, these battle-hardened soldiers didn't fall at the feet of a theologically savvy carpenter. They fell at the feet of Almighty God. And this is not the first time this has happened. In Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel sees a vision of God. And out of that vision, God speaks. And Ezekiel is knocked flat on his face because of the glory of God. Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter five, Peter realizes that Jesus who's in the boat with him is God. And what does he do? He falls at his face and says, whoa, I'm a sinful man. 
In, in Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees God in his temple and he can't even stand it. He says, woe is me. In other words, I'm coming apart. See, in the presence of God, people fall to their faces. This is because in the presence of greatness or someone that we hold to a high standard, we can't take it. This is why if you've ever, if you've ever met someone who is famous, you get really nervous and giddy right before you get to them. Right? About a month and a half ago, I had the opportunity to meet a guy that many of you may not even know who he is, but I've listened to him now. He's a pastor out of the Raleigh area. I've listened to him for about six or seven years, uh, you know, and and kind of followed what he and his church do. And his name is J.D. Greer. We've done some studies here that he has produced, but um, I was at a conference and he had preached on a Friday night at a youth conference. And uh, Whitney and I, my wife, we're we're walking up to get in line to meet him because I said, I want to meet him. I I don't want to be that guy who takes a picture with him, but I ended up doing it because everybody else in front of me did. So I I get in line and and about halfway into the line, Whitney looks at me and she says, what's wrong with you? And I said, what? I'm not nervous. What are you talking about? I nothing's wrong with me. And uh, she's like, well, I didn't even ask anything. You said you were nervous. And I'm like, no, I'm okay. So we get to like, there's one person in front of me about to meet JD and I'm right behind him. And um, I look and I said, what am I going to say to him? And, uh, and Whitney was like, you've not got anything to say. And, and thankfully she wasn't as caught up in the moment as I was. She said, tell him that when we send students to the Raleigh Durham area to go to college, we like to send them to your church and stuff like that. And I said, that is really good. That's what I'm going to tell him. And, uh, so that's what I did. She came through in, in, in the clutch, you know, and I was just about to go up there and babble. And so I go up to him and right before I get to him, she touches me on the back and I look back and she says, Adrian, don't hug him. And, and what, what you don't know about that situation is about seven years ago, I took a group of students to Raleigh to, to watch a, a, a concert by a Christian rapper named Lecrae. And um, Lecrae at this point wasn't as, as, as big a name as he is now, but he was still a pretty big deal. And he, at the very end of the concert, he jumps off of the stage and starts running through the crowd. And all the people that are close to the stage don't realize he's right behind them. And I'm the old guy, because all these kids were younger than me. I'm the old guy. And like, he's, he's, I'm standing right there and he just begins to run toward me. I'm like, what am I going to do? So as soon as he gets near me, instead of like giving him five saying, Hey, what's up? He's rapping. And I just latch on and give him a great big old hug, man. And to this day, I know the reason he doesn't jump off the stage. It's not because he's won Grammys. It's because he doesn't want to have that encounter with me again. All right. He remembers me and I'm going to keep telling myself that, but what, what happened? <clears throat> when I got into the presence of someone that I viewed uh, had, a, had a greater image than I did, someone that I, that I look up to, what happened? I, I got in the, the presence of, of JD and I was like, whoa, man, like this, this guy's important. I've watched this guy. I've listened to this guy. He's important. And all of a sudden I was, I was kind of left to, 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 to nothing. I was like, what am I going to do next? But see, in the presence of God, It's easy to do that with somebody, but in the presence of God, we realize our insufficiency and his enormous greatness. We realize that Jesus' claim to be God wasn't just some fly-by-night flippant statement, rather the bold claim of the truth of who he is. God incarnate, God the divine creator wrapped in human flesh, come down to save humanity. Jesus says, I am. He claims to be God. He proclaims who he is, which leads to the second truth this morning. Jesus is in complete control. 
Jesus is in complete control. Check out verse four. When I read this, this past week in my office, I was up there and I started like clapping and yelling out of excitement. Thankfully there, there is, you know, uh, insulation in the walls and we finally got our doors put in because I was excited about this one verse. And you'll see why hopefully in just a moment, verse four, then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him. So Adrian, I was not expecting that for clapping and excitement. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, this may not seem like much because you say, if he's God, of course he knows. But think about it. Jesus is about to be taken to an unfair court hearing, about to be beaten and flogged in front of all of Jerusalem, about to be hung up on a cross to die, all while having God's righteous punishment poured out onto him. And he has the ability and the steady to just stand up and say, who is it that you seek? You see, in the midst of his darkest time, Jesus was still in control. Though from the disciples' perspective, it seemed like their world was falling apart. The soldiers have, have swords. The soldiers have weapons. Jesus was still on top. Jesus was still in control. Maybe you didn't realize that, that being calm would be such a big deal, but has anyone in here ever got in trouble? Maybe it's back in the day. Maybe you kids, it's happened to you, but you got in trouble and your mom or your dad says, you just wait till you get home. Anybody ever had that happen? Yeah, when you do, what happens? The whole time that you are waiting till you get home, you're trying to bargain, you're trying to get out of it. You're trying to say, hey, <clears throat> like next time I just won't do it as bad. The whole time your parents are like, nope, you're still getting it when you get home. And you're nervous that entire time. You're scared, you're worried, you're anxious, you don't know what's going to happen. Now, now that, that sounds good, but then take, a, take and multiply that times 50 billion. And the anger that your parents had, multiply that times 50 billion. And the anger that God has against sin was being poured out on Jesus. And he was able to step up steady and calm and say, who is it that you seek? See, this is important because if Jesus was cool and calm and steady in the situation he was facing, which was literally hell on earth because he was taking the punishment of your sin and mine, then in your dire situation, no matter how difficult it is, if your faith is in the God of the garden, you can stand as steady as he was. If your faith is in Jesus, no matter what it is you're facing, you can stand steady. Perhaps you're in here this morning and your world seems to be falling apart. Maybe you're in here and your world honestly is falling apart. Maybe it's nothing that you did or you could control or anything you did wrong. But your situation is just dire and you don't know what to do next. Or maybe you're in here this morning and you made a decision that was not good. And because of decisions you've made, you're in the place that you're in right now and you don't know what to do next. And you've got to realize this. In your most chaotic hour when nothing seems to be going right, when everyone else seems to turn away from you and they've lost hope, Jesus is still in control. And if you're a follower of his, he is with you you. You remember when Peter jumped out of the boat in, in Matthew 14 and he said, Jesus, if that's you, call to me and I'll come walk to you. And, and Peter jumps out of the boat and he begins walking on water. A human being, normal guy begins walking on water, doing something supernatural. And then what happens? He's looking at Jesus, he's walking and all of a sudden he sees a wave and that wave's coming toward him. And all of a sudden when he takes his eyes off of Jesus and he looks to that wave, which is his circumstance, he sees that wave and what happens to him? He begins to sink. He begins to sink. Why? Because in that moment, he thought that circumstance was greater than the one that he was looking at. But you've got to realize something this morning, that your circumstances, no matter how stressful, no matter how dire, no matter how bad, your circumstances are not in control. 
Your, your wayward kid is not in control. Your cancer, no matter how bad, is not in control. Your circumstances are not in control. Jesus is. So what do we do then? We turn our eyes to Jesus. We turn our eyes to Jesus. The effects of your circumstance in doing that won't be lessened. But with your eyes on the Savior, you'll be able to press through whatever it is you're facing with hope. It's like the old hymn says, Oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. There's never a moment that you can say, I don't think God knows today. I don't think he knows. I don't think he can feel what I am feeling. No, God always knows. And Jesus felt what it is that you feel. And that's why you can have faith that no matter what you're walking through now, Jesus is not only with you, but he's felt what you are feeling. But we've got to know that truth. We've got to know that because let me just say, sometimes there's a difference in feeling and knowing because we can feel something that's not true. We can feel something that has no truth behind it whatsoever. For whatever reason, every once in a while, about two or three times a year, it doesn't happen as bad all the time, but, but I just get this anxiety that just, that just doesn't just creep in, but like it, it flies all over me. And for whatever reason, for sometimes it's a week, sometimes it's a month, I just, I can't seem, people around me may not know it, but I can't seem to function as well as I want because I have these anxious thoughts and these thoughts that are just kind of pouring into my mind that are saying one thing. And I, if I go and I believe what I'm feeling, then I'll be in a deep and a dark place. But when that happens to me, when I go through that, this is literally what I do. I quote verses and remind myself of verses like Job 38, 4. When God looks at Job, Job had been in the worst situation imaginable. And God says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. In other words, God says, Job, I know your situation's tough, but you know what? I created the world. I created you and I know what's going on. I go to Psalm 116, one through five. says, I love the Lord because he's heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Let me just stop and say this. If you cry out to God, he hears you. When you cry out to God, he listens and hears you. Listen to what it says. He inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. That just means my world was caving in. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. And listen to what David said. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. About six years ago, I had a a situation come up in my life that, that, that caused a lot of worry, caused a lot of stress, caused a lot of anxiety. I didn't know medically if I was going to be okay or not. And God used this verse in my life, unlike any other Philippians four, six, and seven, do not be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious. You say, how can I not be anxious? Because in everything with prayer and supplication, with Thanksgiving, take your request to God. Look at what it says. The peace of God, which surpasses our ability to comprehend will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's truth right there. What about Isaiah 43, one through three? But now thus says the Lord who created you. Oh, oh Jacob, he who formed you, oh Israel, fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Let me just stop for a second before I go on. If you're a Christian in here, you're a follower of Christ. You have given your life to Christ and you walk with him. This is talking about you right here. It says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. 
and through the rivers. They shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present. Doesn't say a very tomorrow help or a very hopefully help, a very present help in time of trouble. This is something we've got to know this morning. This is something you've got to walk out of here knowing this morning that when anxiety begins to creep in and control your thoughts and emotions, you pray and call out to, I am. When depression leads you to a place of no hope, remember you pray to, I am. When you feel worthless and wonder, will, any, will I ever be good enough? Will anyone ever love me? You look to Jesus who says, I am. When the closest people in your life turn their back on you and you wonder if you can ever be loved again or you will ever love again, look to Jesus who says, I am, which leads us to our third point. Jesus trades places with his disciples. Jesus trades places <clears throat> with his disciples. Look at verse seven and eight. He asked them again, whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? And, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Jesus does something here that maybe we didn't expect. They have his disciples seized. They have him seized and they're about to take them all in. And Jesus says, hang on a second. He literally looks and says, take me, not them. Take me, let these men go. What's interesting is the, the typical word for, for let, a couple of Greek words for let them go free, the typical word is not used. Instead, the word that often gets translated forgive is used right here. So Jesus says, essentially, take me and forgive them. Take me, let these men go. You see, Jesus sacrificed himself for the safety of his disciples but that's foreshadowing what he was about to do when he was going to go to a cross and stand before God and say, God, I know they're the ones who have wronged you. I know they're the ones who have sinned, but God, take me, forgive them. Jesus became our substitute. We were the ones who were supposed to go to a cross. We were the ones who were supposed to be uh, condemned for our wrongdoing because we have sinned against Almighty God and Jesus willingly gave himself up for us in our place so that we could be forgiven. He could have called thousands of angels to save him, but he did so willingly. They, they didn't take him in his defiance. Jesus lowered his defenses. He surrendered to his fate, but ultimately his glory. Because of that, there's no way that we can walk out of here this morning wondering, does God love me? You can't leave this morning thinking, does God care for me? Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they were coming to take all of them, when Jesus could have said, I'm done with this, I'm going back to heaven. No, Jesus said, take me, not them. So as you sit in here this morning, you've got to remember 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, that's Jesus, became sin who never sinned so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus would be obedient to the point of death, dying for you and me when he didn't deserve it, so that you and I who deserve punishment for our wrongdoing against God could then be saved, forgiven, and have Christ's perfect righteousness applied to our lives so that when God looks at you, if you're a follower of Christ, he no longer says, you the sinner, he looks at you and says, you the son, you are my daughter. Because Jesus took our place. 
He said he needed to drink the cup the Father had given him. The cup was the punishment and justice and judgment against all wrongdoing, against evildoers. Jesus drinks that cup, takes the punishment for you and me when he never did one single wrong so that we who have wronged God countless times could then walk away free and forgiven. You see, that's, that's the gospel. That's the gospel that Jesus took our place so that we could have our sin forgiven when we didn't deserve it, we didn't earn it, when we could do nothing to get it, God did it for us. At the core of the gospel is Jesus trading places with you and me. He traded in his perfect righteousness to become sin so that we could trade in our sinful rags for right standing before God. He did that. The only way he could do that is because he was God. And in the moment, whenever you face a situation that you don't know if you can handle, he is still God then who is in charge. And you know the depth of his love for you if he would trade places with you to take your punishment and your sin so that you could then have his righteousness. 